Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. We're actually recording on Friday for once, which is kind of great, so we are actually winding down a week. And also, uh, hey, uh, hey, it's been a while. This fall has been, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, actual hell. <laughs> I think for everyone in the world, uh, but also personally for both of us. Uh, so we thought it might be appropriate to talk about a game that is about a lot of things, uh, many, many things, and some of the things that we've been dealing with potentially, and that is Night in the Woods. Came out in February, I think, uh, on PC, and it recently came out on console. I've been playing it on console, and Rob, I know you've been playing it too, so first of all, I'm really glad that we're <laughs> recording Idle Weekend, and second of all, how you doing and how you feeling about Night in the Woods? Uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about Night in the Woods uh, <laughs> in, in a weird way. Um, it's very both topical uh, in terms of our political moment, our cultural moment. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, it's also like literally tomorrow I'm flying home and yeah. going back to my economically distressed home region of North northern Indiana. Um and there is a lot in Night in the Woods that is particularly resonant uh, if that's sort of your background, right? Yeah. Um, it, it feels like a very particular to our generation uh, type of story. And there are a lot of beats in the game that like, are almost verbatim conversations that I've had uh, with, with parents or with <laughs> friends from home. Uh, and so playing this game in a lot of ways is like, uh, cathartic in some ways, but in another way, it's kind of like I'm living through my visit home before I actually go. Like yeah. all the, all the kind of like dreadful parts, um, <laughs> which is weird because it's not, it, it, it's, it's not a mean spirited game at all. Uh, but there is a pretty heavy like darkness to it. Uh, that is like really belies its its art style and its humor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very fair. I'm also literally going home tomorrow uh, for Christmas uh, on a train, not on a plane, and I'm not going to um, any sort of Rust Belt area. I'm going to Rhode Island, uh, which I suppose actually was hit pretty badly by the economic crisis. Weirdly, one of one of the only New England states that was uh, like super super badly hit, uh, especially because Rhode Island, if you didn't know, actually has a huge manufacturing uh, economy, like a lot of right. factories in Rhode Island and a lot of, uh, sort of jewelry manufacturing is like our biggest export huh. as a state. Yeah, it's really interesting and weird. We're like a very, very uh, industrial state. I guess it's, uh, you know, we have a lot of museums dedicated to how we're the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution in America with all our mills, Slater Mill and so on and so forth. But I'll stop talking about Rhode Island now because it's not that interesting. Well, but it is, but it is relevant <laughs> to like... Somewhat, I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. the thing is like... Night in the Woods can kind of feel like it's about anyone's uh, sort of post-industrial economy. But even yeah. if you're from a rural, rural region, you can like play this game and like see a lot of familiar themes in it. Like, you know, really, it's particularly located, yes, in in the Rust Belt, in uh, sort of industrialized uh, Pennsylvania. This this sort of feels like the cartoon. Uh, like sequel about all the kids of the characters from the Deer Hunter. Oh God, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dan. 
Good. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because uh, like literally, right? It's like all yeah. about those like uh, salt of the earth, like real American types that were portrayed in in the Deer Hunter, and now this is kind of like you know we're thirty, forty years on, and that entire economy and the society that built up around it is kind of a, a shambles. Uh, and a lot of the culture that's sort of formed around it is is starting to fray apart. Um, and that's a story that's been repeated throughout a lot of the United States. And I think it's it goes beyond the decline of manufacturing. It, it gets to this idea that there used to be a prosperous laboring class. Yeah. Um, that you could work a you know hourly wage job and maybe it was a real hard job but you could you could work it um and you'd still have enough to get by uh you you'd still be able to put by some money right and for, you could, for other you could things. have a house oftentimes yeah. yeah you could you could afford a house a family with you know multiple children you could do that working in a factory at one point in this country's past you know? Well, I mean, like for for real, like I mean, my parents. I'm, I've probably talked about this on the podcast, but uh, my parents got married like not even out of high school. They both got GEDs. They got married while they were in high school. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, dropped out and started their family. And my dad basically went off to work at the steel mills in Northwest Indiana. Uh, worked on top of the, uh, the giant Coke ovens, so he'd stand there and uh, stand over a basically a massive fire. Uh, wow. And shovel uh, shovel coke into it, um, and and sort of fuel it. And you know the stories from, you know, my mom talks about he'd be coming home from from work, and she'd have to like help bathe him, because after a shift, uh, you know, the smoke and the soot and and the and the dust uh, was so thick that like literally he could not shower it off. He could not uh, oh. wash it off in the tub. Like literally. Uh, somebody had to basically like literally scrub the shit off his body. Um, and while he's doing that, uh, my parents, like he's able to also put himself through college, wow. uh, community college, but he's able to do it. Um, and from there, uh, you know, he's, and, and, you know, they're able to buy, you know, buy and own a car, uh, you know, able to, and and then he's he's able to leverage that degree into like uh you know some a low level white collar uh, job that became a career, yeah. And that is, I mean, it's it's awesome that, that that it broke that way for him. And like it was never that easy. A lot of people like you know made the same moves and maybe things didn't work out. But it was it was a viable path. It was not like you know an incredibly unique American story. Uh, the days when this was possible, though, are are long, long gone. And I think Night in the Woods is kind of about those places that sort of come from that ethos, that have this background and the sense of like, well, these are the rules. This is how you build a future. These how you these are how you plan. But you know that entire contract is is sort of been broken. Yeah. Um, and so you're left with all these values and judgments and expectations, but the world isn't going to deliver on them anymore. And it's this weird uh, and, and really bittersweet uh, story of, of this community going through that realization. Yeah, God. I, uh, 
Not not nearly as extreme. Most of my family on my dad's side all worked at a Texas Instruments factory, and that was sort of where mm-hmm. everybody worked forever. You know, that was like the place where everybody in the family went when they were eighteen. You know, to to do work. My my dad uh, went to college, and I had an uncle who went to the Air Force. You know, it's it's kind of the the thing. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they were they were able to have in Rhode Island. They were able to have like a house, <laughs> things like that on on a single salary of somebody working in a factory. It's it's so. You know, this isn't like 300 years ago. This is like, you know, 60 years ago, basically, it was this was the case. So it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's God, it's, it's so crazy to think about that now. And, and here it is, the, the millennial game, Night in the Woods, you know, made by old elder millennials and uh, about a, a younger millennial coming home to this sort of situation. And God, I, I, I'm of like 10 minds on this game. I love this game. I really mm-hmm. enjoy it. I should say this first. Uh, the too realness of it sometimes really is uh, <laughs> super apparent. I said this uh, on, a, on a recent Waypoint podcast, and I won't, uh, you know, whatever, go over that too much. But one thing that does strike me about the game is that the protagonist is annoying in a lot of ways uh, because she's 20 years old and, she's, yeah. you know, she's young. She is struggling with mental illness and very sympathetic, I think, uh, most of the time. But she does do things that are, uh, you know, a little stupid and a little bit like what a 20-year-old does, and it... I like that she annoys me because she reminds me of myself when I was younger. She, you know, a little petulant, a little snarky, a little, you know, completely fucking unaware of how good she has it. (laughs) That kind of thing, you know. Uh, But she kind of has that arc where she really does learn some things uh, throughout the course of this game. The thing that's so striking to me is every time I've come home, you know, to Rhode Island, uh, it's not nearly this extreme. Again, uh... I don't want to make it sound as if like, oh, this is my life. Uh, but it is very striking to me, the people who kind of got out uh, versus the people who are, mm-hmm. are still living, you know, in the same town and uh, they're working retail. They're all working retail. What else do you work in 2017, right? Uh, well, not what else. Obviously, there are other sectors. This just seems to be a thing that has happened in America in, a, in large part, like you're working retail or service, right? Some kind of service uh, job or retail job. And in the game, uh, her best friends are working basically retail. Uh, her, her friend B has taken over the family business, which is like a hardware store that also has sort of a, a you know, almost like a handyman service kind of going on as well. They do repairs on uh, machinery. And her parents have died, and she just kind of had to take over. And so she's 20 and, you know, holding well, down the fort. Well, she's managing it, but she doesn't really own it anymore. Yeah, like, it's yeah. no longer a family business in some ways. She's just kind of doing her best and coping. And it's, God, B really kind of, maybe more than any other character, was really like, oh, yeah. oh God, I oh, I just want to give her a hug. And also, I know this person in real life, you know? It's very, like, yeah, that too real. Again, very, very kind of too real. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, the realness of it is 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 really is quite something, uh, <laughs> yeah. because I think so. There there are so many things in Night in the Woods that really um, like speak to things I've gone through, or friends have gone through, or conversations I've had. Uh, and one thing is that so on the one hand, it does look like these kids have it pretty good right like if things are so tough then how come most of all they ever do is just screw off right um but at the same time like 
what is what 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 is sort of shot through Night in the Woods is that like a lot of that sort of like classically frivolous young person behavior, the the dicking around, the the arrested <laughs> development, the perpetual adolescence, um is in some ways like a coping mechanism or defense mechanism from like facing what the you know from facing the hand you've really been dealt. Yeah. Yes. Uh which is that you know the 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 ways out of uh you know a precarious financial situation are extremely narrow. Uh there there's not a lot of promise and potential in a lot of the jobs that these characters are pursuing. Um and the idea of getting to like a secure stable future like you know mom and dad had uh is just you know kind of preposterous uh to a lot of these kids and when you take that away when hard work planning discipline don't really guarantee or even <laughs> or even in many <laughs> yeah. cases like appreciably increase your odds of you know achieving you know, a stable future. Um, it's not really worth it to stick at that. Um, it's, you know, you're, you're just going to, you're just going to get old and frustrated uh, waiting for that to happen. So fuck it. Why not go off and raise hell with your friends? Yeah. Um, but there are moments that like, there was this moment that I, I thought was just transcendent. Uh, and it was so exactly, resonant with a lot of a lot of stuff that i see and encounter when i go home uh the part where b and may go to the mall yes yes, yes. uh and i remember i mean we're both 90s kids the mall yep. was where it was fucking at oh yeah that's where you went <laughs> like those things were like goddamn like vaticans of consumerism <laughs> like <laughs> And it wasn't like you had opinions about which malls were good. Oh uh, my in a god! Lot of cases, yes. right? Like uh, in Northwest Indiana, it was um, uh, there were multiple malls that you like you pledged your allegiance to, even right? Like <laughs> yeah. you know, there was there was the mall in Hammond. I can't even remember what it was called. Uh, there was there's the River Oaks Mall. I want to say over in Illinois, and then like where sort of my uh, extremely bourgeois. Uh, you know, kid, uh, you know, neighborhood kids went was South Lake Mall uh, oh. somewhere in Indiana, and that was sort South of fancy. South Lake Mall sounds like the mall. Like it really sounds like, oh yeah, you can go to South Lake. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely like bigger. Uh, had slightly more modern stores. The other, the other malls tend to be a little more, um, you know, like the other malls tend to like be built around like a Carson Peary Scott, for instance, whereas like oh. South Lake was, you know, Banana Republic and shit like that. Oh yeah. But anyway, um, but all these places like were kind of almost like it's weird and it's silly in some ways to be nostalgic for this, but like they were like civic institutions, uh, <laughs> and people would go and hang out and you'd spend time there and you'd shop and like you know there was no there, there wasn't an Amazon really, and so like all, everything that you you know wanted. Uh, was somewhere in those shops for the most part, and you just hang out there. And they were kind of cool places to go. Um, and they've they they basically been annihilated by the internet. And so you go you go to the the mall in Night in the Woods, and one store after another has been shuttered. Uh, the place is kind of falling apart. And B keeps telling you like, yeah, internet got that one. Internet got that one. <laughs> nope, internet. 
Uh, but there's this great moment where they go to this uh, fountain, this fish fountain, <laughs> and they, it's it's dry now. It's not running, and they're reminiscing about like the days where like once a year it used to like somehow turn into like a water cannon and like spray <laughs> passersby and people get mad and it was like hilarious to kids. Uh, and and B has a really amazing like monologue about the weird way when your kid beliefs entangle with things you observe and she became convinced like that uh god lived in the atrium of the mall yeah <laughs> uh but my god there's this moment you climb up you climb up into the sort of the the catwalks of the of the mall and you find the controls for the fountain and you turn it back on <laughs> and the music comes up and the lights go down and you play this little mini game of squirting people with the with the fish fountain but it is this like gorgeous moment um of I don't know, like, you know, lost, you know, it's it's reclaiming a lost memory, reclaiming a lost space or moment. Uh, it's it's utterly wonderful. And the game's sort of packed with stuff like that. Yeah. That, that, that moment is so great also because it's kind of the first time you see B be happy for a second because her life is, is so awful and so miserable. She's just so stressed. And, like, she herself is so annoyed at May for being kind of childish or acting a little bit more childish and... You know, maybe maybe feels a little jealous of her, you know, kind of having the opportunity to go out and go off to college and, you know, do something else. And then she came back and she's annoyed at her. In this moment, she's just like cracking up at what May has done to the passerbys and soaking people. And the animation is wonderful. I, I agree. That's one of my favorite moments in the game, too. It's just, oh, it's so good. Yeah, this game, I, I really, really... I really like Night in the Woods. I actually sort of love that I'm taking so long with it, too. Like, I had started it in February when it first came out, and then something something pulled me away. Something always pulls me away. It's very annoying. When did Breath um, of the Wild come out? It was probably <laughs> Breath of the Wild <laughs> that pulled me away. It probably was, because I got that uh, like a couple weeks early as well. So, yeah, and, and, and now I'm playing it again on console and actually getting all the way through it, I think, uh, hopefully. I've not finished it yet, but hopefully I'll be I'll be done soon. Um, it's just God, just taking it in, especially after the fall that I think we've both had. It it's been it's been nice to kind of play something that's that feels so honest and feels so like earned in a lot of ways. Like the 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 sadness in this game always feels very earned. It feels very much like no, this isn't just something that's trying to package up feelings and and put them in a little box or be especially twee about it. This game is cute in a lot of ways, and it's also very, very, very sad in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, sort of uh, appropriately depressing, I guess is what I would call it. <laughs> appropriately depressing with those moments of mirth that are uh, yeah, just going for it. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, there there are certain exchanges that like almost physically hurt, right? Like there's a scene where May gets into a fight with her mom uh, yeah. that is, uh, you know, pretty terrific. It's, you know, it, it captures how those things can start as a small, a small exchange and then just escalate into a door slamming screaming match uh, out of nowhere. Um, yeah, it's, there, there's there's so much here, and and I and it's it seems like this would have been so easy for it to go horribly fucking wrong, yeah. right? Like, I think something that a lot of um, stories in this mold uh, go go astray with is that they can be a little condescending. Oh yeah, like 
the entire um the motif of like oh you've come back from outside and now you realize like oh your whole community's bullshit and everyone's everyone's been lying to you <laughs> and you know it's and and this never does that right like there there's actually a lot to admire and appreciate about these characters and about the about the world they want to reclaim right yeah uh, the thing that they're nostalgic for uh but yeah, I, I mean it's 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 really important that the game like observes, but it doesn't really seem to judge, and doesn't even really seem that prescriptive, right? It's it's not like, uh, and here's how we fix it. Here's we, how we get out of this. Right. Uh, it, it it's it's very matter of fact. Yeah, it's just this is what's happening. This is a it feels like a real lived experience or a real honest take uh, on on a lived experience, and that's that's really necessary right now <laughs> in a lot of ways. Another thing I like about the game is that, uh, I don't know, it, it's not judgy about religion, even though it's not a religious game by any means, or at least uh, thus far, I'm, I'm, I still have a, another hour maybe in the game to go. But I, I sort of like that, uh, you know, there's a character that's like a pastor or something, Pastor K, Kate, I don't know, I forget her name, it might be Pastor Kate, right? who's just out there trying to help people. And it's not, she's not sort of like, oh, you know. And you're gay and you're going to hell. It's more of a, there's this homeless guy in the woods and I'm trying to get him warm. And that's kind of nice to see. Um, I think a lot of things that, that sort of, I'm, I'm not a religious person by any means, but I know how important religion is to a lot of people in the community that I'm from uh, and mm-hmm. sort of the world that I'm from. And I sort of appreciate takes on religion that are not completely condescending, <laughs> nor are they necessarily... Uh, fully embracing of religion or, or all the doctrines of religion or anything like that. But again, something that feels kind of like an honest look at something uh, from the point of view of someone who is neither necessarily completely in that community, but also not necessarily outside of that community either. Somebody who kind of accepts this is part of their world or part of their uh, or so part of a lot of people's experience of the world and isn't kind of like, oh, well, you're all idiots, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I like that a lot. I like that approach to it. It feels like a very balanced, uh, kind of sane, um, also not judgy in a lot of ways. I, I feel like not judgy is the, the name of this game in a lot of ways. Not judgy in the woods. That sh- They should have called it that. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think that is really important because I think that... So the thing that I thought about a lot as I played this game is, oh, those fucking profiles of uh, Trump voters in, uh, you know, in middle America, which even there, it's like, you know, it's this idea that it's all, you know, unemployed iron workers and steel workers and coal miners who who elected Donald Trump when the truth is it it was generally, you know, affluent uh, suburbanites. Yep. Uh, But there's been like this, there's this weird anthropological tone to a lot of the coverage of economic crisis in middle America, uh, like outside the major coastal cities. And I think in terms of it's like lack of judgment, I, I I think even more than that, it's it's perspective is coming from within those communities, right? Like, yes, may is returning after an absence, but like, Nevertheless, this is home. This is not like this has not been a long absence. Like this is an intimately understood uh, town, story, location, uh, moment, and 
I think that gives it a compassion and understanding that a lot of the uh, more journalistic approaches to t- describing the dynamics and work at work uh, in uh, you know in, in rural or uh, you know f- f- formerly industrial America uh, those those perspectives tend to lack. Yeah, yeah, that was something. I mean, there's also the part of this that, you know, Scott Benson is very active on Twitter and sort of reading his tweets. He's one of the, I think he's writer, animator on this project, one of those sort of creative leads. Not a lot of people worked on this game, but, you know, sort of one of the creative leads. And his perspective on things like uh, his, I believe his politics are very leftist, but he is also very sympathetic to people who are, you know, in <laughs> in other parts of the world we don't necessarily see much of in our in our various bubbles i don't think anybody lives in one bubble i think we all live in sort of various bubbles and all the various venn diagram bubbles that we live in kind of conflate in certain ways but they also do have outsides to them right um i there were times playing this game where i felt like i'm reading some scott benson tweets uh but in a good way not in a shitty way that's it's hard to explain this in a in in sort of the proper way here but yeah it feels like a person with sympathy and empathy viewing this world and, and sort of giving an earnest take on this world without a lot of judgment. And that was another thing I really appreciated about it. Yeah, I think, um, so it definitely feels a lot like uh, Scott Benson's Twitter, the game, uh, in some ways. <laughs> yeah. but in part because they reflect so many of, of his, uh, you know, personal interests as, as well. Uh, and I know that, you know, I'm not like, I know he did the art, uh, and, and got it. It sure does look like a uh, bombs fall uh, illustrated game, <laughs> uh, and in 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 good ways. Uh, but and I know I think his his partner uh, Bethany Hockenberry yeah. was the writing lead or was one of the uh, story leads on it. But I think they're both um, from like communities in Pennsylvania that are you know kind of similar. Yeah. Uh, to this, right? Like, sort of in the um, exurban sprawl outside outside Pittsburgh, um, and I think one of the so something I was thinking about a lot as I played this game was um, <laughs> Scott has a weird holiday movie obsession that uh, I share. Sure. And it's this movie called um, A Christmas Gift. Oh God! Uh, do you remember this? Vaguely, very vaguely. You'll have to refresh my memory. Okay, so um, it's it's uh, it's in that it's in that genre of um. Hang on, I think Harry Dean Stanton is in it. Oh, perfect. That's good. That's real good. One, oh, no, no, no. It's, yeah, it's One Magic Christmas. That's it. Oh, okay. okay. So anyway, uh, it, but it is it is this movie. It's it's in the holiday uh, genre of uh, an angel comes and fucks up your life to teach you a, <laughs> to teach you a valuable lesson <laughs> about the meaning of Christmas and family and love. Um, but it is... Uh, as, as, as Scott sort of relates it, it's also one of the few movies that is actually really honest and unsparing at being about the working poor. Yeah. 
uh, you know, people who are busting busting their ass in jobs that don't afford them a lot of dignity, uh, and and certainly very few ways to you know to ever fuck up. Um, and this movie is about uh, you know uh, Mary Steenburgen. Uh, basically, she and her family are you know on the cusp of some hard times, and she's very frustrated, uh, and she just loses the Christmas spirit. Harry, an, the angel version of Harry Dean Stanton comes in and uh, just like starts laying waste uh, to her life. Um, like, I think even her husband dies uh, oh, real early on. Uh, yeah, but then at the end, he totally, uh, you know, uh, you know, magics it away and, and she gets everything back. But uh, but but the point is, like, sort of a longstanding interest in in, I think, Scott's work in public facing persona is that stories of the working class and the working poor are largely absent from our media. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you and I have talked about this on this show, right? Like it's one of the things that's cool about seventies movies that stops happening as much in like the nineties and certainly by the two thousands, uh, like an honest to God working class and middle class has largely been erased. Um, yeah. They just they don't feature. If you look at sitcoms right now, um, everyone is like not like everyone's pretending to be middle class, but they're like rich as fuck. Oh god, yeah. Um, <laughs> they have and, real nice clothes and big houses. Yeah, like Modern Family. Yep. <laughs> it's like what fucking family is that? Yeah, modern uh, rich like, ass family. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, Night in the Woods feels like a corrective to that, where it's like, oh, here's what here's what reality is for a lot of people. But it is a lot to be playing through uh, just before <laughs> going home to yes. <laughs> going home. Yeah, it sure is. I'm, I'm hoping to actually finish it today and then go home tomorrow and have a whole whole Christmas thing <laughs> for sure. I mean, to be clear, like, I, yeah, again, like my, my family, we, we, we do OK. I, I'm not I've not been in the working poor, I, I, that's not my experience. I don't want to make it sound as if, oh, yes, May's story is mine, or, or B's story is mine in any way. But it is something I really, really appreciate. Yeah. God. Uh, the, the mental health aspect uh, also speaks to me pretty directly. But uh, again, it's, it's done in a, in a very sort of spare, but also earnest way, uh, the way it's sort the- of tackled. Yeah. What are the things that really work for you in that portrayal? Because I, I, I suspect there's nuance to it that I'm missing, right? Like, there is the entire emotional blow-up at the party, uh, yeah. for instance, uh, the sort of manic uh, behavior. But, like, uh, the, like I'm, I'm just curious, what about the portrayal is particularly, like, ah, this, this is a game that is truly, like, tuned in to the lived experience of this? Yeah, well, I think there's a moment even before the party where Bay is like looking in the mirror and just insulting herself, just constantly, constantly. There's nothing that's like living up to expectations for her. There's nothing that's adequate uh, for her. There's a lot of like those little moments, I think. I think that's what it does it well. It's not, nothing is ever sort of underlined and overstated as in like, May is depressed or, or bipolar. May has this problem. It's more, there's a lot of just those little details that ring very true. In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I also really like the moment with Angus uh, where uh, I don't know if you played this particular little story because a lot of this game is, is uh, you know, going off. Who, do you, who are you going to hang out with that yeah. day? Uh, and there, there's a, a, a part you can do with Angus where you ride on his bike and you go out to the woods and you do knife fighting. No, it's Greg. It's Greg. Sorry, Greg. I don't know why Angus, I always... No, Angus is the bear. 
I always get them confused. I don't know why. Couple names, man. Because I you, like liter- when you're introduced, they're literally like together all the time. Oh my god, it's so bad. But yes, that's what it is. Uh, and he, you have like this almost like very kind of manic time with him doing this knife fighting and you're stabbing each other with knives and then you just get this quiet reflection where greg is just kind of like yeah i just i don't know if i deserve my boyfriend and i don't know what i'm doing in my life and and it's just this really god it just hits you because you were just knife fighting you know you were just doing this like very like kind of being the bad kid in the woods sort of thing. And then all of a sudden he, he, he gets so reflective and, and he just needs to talk to you and, and, and tell you about what's really going on. And that's beautiful. It's, I don't know. It just really hit me. It's well, in the little details for me in this game. Yeah. It's so good. The way he, he, that's the conversation he wanted to have all along, but he needed to like wind up to it yeah. with like, with all this bullshit beforehand. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real good. That's good. Oh, Greg. Greg is wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we should probably turn toward letters. Yes, I think uh, which we, we still have a few. Uh, people have actually people like were actually writing, uh, and they weren't all just where the fuck is the podcast. <laughs> we appreciate that a lot. It's really nice when that happens. I'll, I'll read this first one here. Let me let me just get uh, my window looking nice for myself. Okay, this is from Renish. Yay! I think we call. I, I think we call. Uh, friend of the show, John Reinish yeah. here. Uh, hello, immersive weekenders. A big topic around the worldwide water cooler has been that single-player narrative games have been struggling to be profitable in the AAA level of production. When a narrative game is pushed to fill a $100 million-plus budget, it impacts the experience in every way. Small teams or individuals are much more capable uh, at bringing a personal story to completion. A product that isn't smoothed out by focus tests, has more realistic sales numbers, or doesn't need to maximize its target demographics. While the loss of this genre at the AAA level is definitely not a good thing, if the space created by that loss is filled by shorter, more focused experiences, maybe we can think of it as bittersweet. Cheers, Renish. Oh, yes. I, so, in this... I, I, but I, I want my I, pretties! It's, it's not even just that. It's also that, like, on a systemic level, I don't know... I would love to be proven wrong. I really would, genuinely, because I do generally prefer a lot of times uh, games from smaller teams. I like that. I like that personal touch. I like the personal stories. I just don't know on a sort of systemic mechanical level if we could get something like Prey from a smaller team. And I don't even care about the animation. Like you could just have blobs on the screen and (laughs) just tell me that they're people and it's good writing and I'll be fine with it. It's more, can I do this sort of general room? Can I approach this room in 27 different ways? Can I blow up the oxygen tank? That means I don't need to get the strength upgrade so I can sort of blow it in just the perfect way that I can now squeeze through an area and do these these seven other things or also do the hacking or also do the, you know, whatever other sort of creative, weird MacGyver solution that I came up with. That's what I'm worried about in terms of immersive sims. I Give me 10 Tacomas and I will be a happy, happy person, but I also want my Dishonored's for that level of sort of systemic interaction. And I will say also, one thing that has complicated this to some degree has been uh, Death of the Outsider, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. the best Dishonored game, because it is actually shorter and more limited in certain ways because it it does reuse level assets. It it is like a very economical Dishonored game, right? In a lot of ways. But for that to exist at all, the first game kind of had to exist, right? <laughs> like it's reusing a lot of assets. And I think in a really intelligent and really cool way, it's awesome, honestly, to um, 
go into a space that you understood one way previously from a previous game and then have this completely new context to it with different powers and different types of enemies and different things are happening. That's really cool. I, I think like an intelligent remix of a great level is an incredibly cool idea and they do it really well here. It's just somebody had to make all those expensive assets first and somebody had to make all of those systems work together in a polished way first for this to even be possible. So I, uh, I am struggling with that. <laughs> yeah, I um, It's one of the many things that has me feeling a little like blue at the end of the year is that yeah. like, uh, I, I feel like I've, I've been enjoying this amazing banquet of games like this, basically since the first Dishonored game came out. Oh, yeah. um, and now, like, I suspect the famine years. Oh. Uh, and like yeah Tacoma is one of my favorite games this year and we, we'll, we'll talk about it when uh, fuck maybe we'll talk about the endorsements I don't know <laughs> maybe. Uh, but one of my favorite games this year uh, and like I, I think it is truly an innovative uh, and, and, and really clever uh, narrative immersive sim but I also feel like in one playthrough, I kind of saw Tacoma and, yeah. you know, it was great, but that's not a space station that I'm going to like explore and like, you know, return to again and again and think about and really become like intimately familiar with. Um, there's just, you know, that's not what that game is. Right. Um, and so it, part of it is this, uh, yeah, like I, I love the different routes of play, uh, things like that. I also just love the way that immersive sims make spaces feel so dense yes. uh, by just the act of traversal becomes sort of fraught and, and high stakes and it becomes a game of skill. Um, and I don't know if we get that because like, I don't know how the economics work but the impression I get is that, you know, we're talking about sort of the, the missing middle, uh, the missing middle class of games. <laughs> um, in terms of like the risk you're taking on, uh, making a, you know, let's say you're making a Death of the Outsider, right? You're reusing assets, you're making a much smaller immersive sim uh, than, than the mainline game uh, that you created. Uh, it's still an enormously expensive game. It's still going to be, vastly more resource intensive than say Tacoma. Yeah. Um and I suspect even Tacoma was a much bigger gamble than uh than Gone Home. Uh I mean Jesus Christ, like Carl Lumley is doing a voice in yeah. in Tacoma. Uh, and there's a really lot good, more animation. <laughs> like yeah. a fuck ton more. Even if it wasn't facial animation, there was still a ton of animation in that game. Right. And so like that's a studio that's coming off a huge success, right? Like Gone Home did really, really well. Yeah. Um, and that gives us Tacoma. And then it's considerably more effort, I think, to get you from like a Tacoma to like something like a uh, Death of the Outsider. But the risk you're starting to take on doesn't really change, right? Like your, your, your odds of making that money back... Uh, I'm not sure it gets any easier to cover as you start adding all those budgetary pressures, right? We need these assets. We need uh, all this extra, like, you know, all these extra levels and, uh, you know, all this all this extra dialogue recording and studio, all, you know, everything that comes to making a game like that. And I'm not sure that that's something that smaller studios are going to be able to replace. Like, 
we we might get 10 Tacomas. That's great. But 10 Tacomas does not balance out like one dishonor. Like it's a different thing, right? Yeah, like if, yeah. you know, here's here's 10, uh, you know, 10 bunches of bananas. Uh, but you're never going to get an apple pie. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're all good. It's just, it's different, man. I, I do want to hope. I, like, believe me, I do want to hope uh, that, that this is a possibility. I just... <sighs> It's just hope. That's all it is. It's hope with well, nothing behind it. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it it is possible. Like, the other thing is, one of the reasons the mills disappeared is because the only people making these bets are massive publishers. Right. Uh, for the most part. Like, um, and I got to believe that people who are willing to operate at a different scale and be a little more sustainable can probably find a slightly more viable uh, business model within that. Um, you know, I look at, again, I look at places like Paradox, right? Yeah. Um, where in addition to their their standard uh, set of Paradox strategy games, uh, which, you know, are not cheap, but at the same time, uh, obviously they've, they've got an engine and a lot of the assets they generate do not cost as much as creating the fucking floor mosaics you find in Dishonored. Uh but you look at you look at publishers like that, and that's that's a scale that you think, okay, a place like that could probably figure out a way to budget and plan for smaller immersive sims, right? In a way that EA or Ubisoft or Bethesda, that's just to even be worth their while, they have to blow it out and yeah. make it a ridiculous risk. So I have no idea. Yeah, God, I also I'm also not a good person to ask about money. Uh, I'll put that out there, but <laughs> noted, <laughs> noted finance wizard Danielle Riendo. God. Oh boy. Um. God, I need to pay off some student debt. Anyway. Yep. Hey, I'm uh, almost, I'm getting there. My man, my hundred and seventy thousand dollars is down to like fifty something thousand. Fuck off! Really? Now. Yeah. I've been paying them off aggressively Shit, my entire is, life, actually, since finishing grad school. That I've is been badass. paying them off okay. aggressively. So, okay, you so know. you're not. I thought you were still lugging around those six figures. Oh, I go. mean, I've been I've been wearing it down. I mean, it's been like half my income since I was making. Yeah. Uh, since it was uh, three quarters of my income, now it's more like half of my income. So you know, we're getting there, kids. All right. Uh, anyway. So our next email is from Jonathan. Jonathan writes, hi, Robin Danielle. First off, I wanted to thank you for having such a great podcast. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Oh, uh, I always feel weird when I accidentally read praise of us on our own emails because it feels oh. like I'm sort of stacking the deck. <laughs> anyway, uh, I always save this in Waypoint Radio for when I run, particularly my Saturday long runs. It's nice having you all keep me company for those two or three hours. It really does help keep me going, though I wish I liked running hills as much as you do, Danielle. <laughs> Your discussion of stat decay back in February was especially resonant. In 2016, I was able to achieve my goal of qualifying for and then running in the Boston Marathon. Nice. But since then, I've had some ups and downs in my training, and at 37 years old, I've wondered sometimes when I've struggled if I'm on my own stat decline. I've come to realize that I'd gotten too focused on results and was losing enjoyment in the act of running. So, I made a greater effort just to get out there and enjoy it, results being what they may. That has helped me immensely. I also realized that in my gaming, I was getting similarly too results-oriented and being too completionist at the expense of having fun. 
Super Mario Odyssey helped expose this for me, is I haven't really cared about how many power moons I've obtained because I'm just enjoying exploring each kingdom so much. Have either of you felt as though you were being too result-oriented? And if so, how did you address it? Man. Bad question to ask me while I'm recovering from an injury. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. It's a good question. It's a very good question. And also, I think, Jonathan, good job. Qualifying for the Boston Marathon is no joke. Only like something like 10% of people who can finish marathons qualify for Boston. So that's that's amazing, first of all. So congrats. But yeah. Uh, this is the story of my entire life is being too results oriented to enjoy anything and being too competitive to enjoy myself in the moment. Uh, so yes, Jonathan, this is, this is a lot of things. Actually, I went through this with Dishonored. I went through this with Dishonored too. We talked about it last year, so I'm not going to retread too, too much there, but being a perfectionist of not having any kills, you know, and, and getting every single thing that kept me from finishing that game. It kept me from like actually going through and, and fully finishing the game. I did finish Death of the Outsider, and I think I've gotten over some of my, uh, some of my 100%ing uh, things, although I might actually 100% Mario versus Rabbids, but that feels like a healthier thing to me because that's like my bedtime game, and it's just going to keep going until I'm done with it fully. So it feels healthier. It doesn't feel like I'm 100%ing this because I need to. I'm actually really enjoying it, and I really enjoy playing that game. Uh, when I'm trying to relax, like when it's bedtime. Uh, it's it's very, very hard and it requires a lot of mindfulness and it sucks that uh, it feels sometimes like having fun and letting yourself relax is in itself hard work. That That is mm -hmm. frustrating at times that like if you have that personality type that does not allow yourself to relax without getting some sort of result or benefit or, or feel like, oh yes, my stats are going up so I can now relax. Uh, it, that can be very frustrating. So it is one of the things, those things where it's like, yeah, it, it really helps to try to be mindful and to try your damn hardest uh, to, to not be a hard ass on yourself all the time uh, with this stuff. Because, hey, you're running. Like, you're getting exercise. You're doing great. Like, that is an awesome thing. And I congratulate you for being able to have that mindset and congratulate you as well for being able to have that mindset with, with Mario. Like, it, it's hard being a human being in this world and it's, it's sometimes it's even hard to enjoy your entertainment because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it especially if you've got some uh, some stuff rolling around in your brain that you don't want rolling around in your brain yeah I um this is something I struggle with uh, I'm nowhere near having a good answer right like <laughs> yeah. like the thing that like sort of I marvel at in this email is like Jonathan identifies the problem and then fucking like acts on oh it. yes uh, which I'm like god damn like what a <laughs> what what a what a you know willpower machine nice work uh, you must be because <laughs> yeah. uh, you know meanwhile I am just like you know, oh, uh, Assassin's Creed Origins just reminded me that, like, uh, there's a papyrus nearby. And I better scour this entire goddamn, like, massive temple complex in order to find this this collectible sheet of paper for no apparent reason. <laughs> uh, and that, and I'll let that, like, sort of torpedo, uh, you know, experience I'm, I'm really, really enjoying. Uh, I don't know how to shut that stuff off. Um... And it sort of routinely derails games for me. Um, yeah, I mean, my solution is generally to, you know, sort of quietly abandon and punk out uh, rather than, like, just focus on the stuff I, I do enjoy and, and doing stuff for its own sake. Um, 
Yeah, or I'll just go completely down the rabbit hole and just give in to the compulsion. Can uh, I? Was, was oh, good. sorry. I was going to ask a question of you, and I don't yeah. know if, if this is relevant at all. Do you find that this is worse in games because you're actually doing something and you are in some ways graded on performance in some ways? Or do you get this with movies and TV as well? Do you Or in books as well? Or, or is this... Is this more of a game thing or is it worse in games? It's worse in games for okay. sure. Yeah. But it is not only a game thing. Okay. Like, yeah. I've always had trouble stopping reading books that I'm actively not enjoying. Right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Like, I just, I, like, no, if I don't complete this, then I can't cross it off this whatever list. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. it's this, it's the <laughs> sensation that there's an endless task list somewhere that I need to go through. And do everything on it before I die someday. Uh, and so it's like, well, need to get through this this element of the Western canon. Not enjoying it, but screw it. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to force myself through it. Uh, yeah. So I, I tend to approach way too much like that. God, that's fair. That's really fair. Okay. All right, endorsements? I think it's time we should talk about those weekend projects. And right, Rob, you got to lead off. You want me to lead off? Okay. Yeah. Mine's actually pretty relevant to uh, Night in the Woods uh, in some okay. ways anyway. I mean, not 100%. This is not like a one-to-one. It's not Night in the Woods the movie or anything. But some of the themes are there. My endorsement is a movie that I liked. I knew I was going to like it. I liked it even more than I thought I was going to like it. And that is I, Tanya, the sort of based on a true story also kind of a bleak comedy also like a fucking too real movie about somebody who deals with abuse and poverty and other things that are incredibly unpleasant in a sort of uh very working class background oh my god so it's the it's it's the story of tanya harding uh in the you know sort of goes through her life it's it's kind of like a uh, it's pseudo documentary, although it's obviously uh, portrayed by actors. It's Margot Robbie is playing Tanya, and Allison Janney is playing her mother. Uh, various other characters, and they are shot as if they were in a documentary. You know, talking about Tanya's life. It's based on several other documentaries that were actually made with Tanya Harding, the real Tanya right. Harding. Right, I have seen one of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's some good ones. My God, I this is a this is a story I've been fascinated by since I was a little kid. I wrote a tiny thing uh, in Waypoint about it, but. When I was 10 and this happened, I remember this happening. Uh, and I remember being a 10-year-old girl, not giving uh, much of a shit about figure skating, but being really interested in this rivalry and this Did you have any story. sympathy for Tanya Harding at the time? God, that's what I'm trying to remember. I feel like I didn't. I feel like I, Same. as a 10-year-old, uh, who actually, I like acted out this entire thing with like my toys like I had Bert okay. was the bodyguard who attacked Nancy Kerrigan, like Bert from Bert and Ernie. And I think Ernie was the boyfriend, was Tanya's boyfriend slash ex-husband in, in real life. And I think Tanya was a troll doll. Do you remember troll dolls? Yeah, yeah she was course. she was a troll doll with pink hair. And like I acted out the whole thing and I thought it was hilarious. I thought I was the funniest little asshole in the world because I had this whole stupid thing. Because of course I was a shitty child. Uh, but yeah, I remember all the adults in my life talking about her uh, like she was white trash, like she's this trashy person, you know, poor white trash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and how could she and blah, blah, blah. Adding the complication to this, of course, and, and so over the years I've read about this story uh, and there's an amazing piece in Believer, I believe. <laughs> I believe, right. Uh, I, I, I could put the link in the show notes, but this really long and fascinating piece by a person who... Um, 
you know, sort of 20 years after the fact, so about three years late, uh, ago, wrote this piece, this very in-depth piece about not just the sort of sexism and classism that the media showed in portraying this case, but also some of the sexism and classism that Nancy Kerrigan herself kind of had to go through. She had uh, sort of a somewhat crooked teeth early in her career, and she had a whole bunch of things that, that some, some bullshit was thrown on her as well. So it wasn't like she was the, you know, actually... Uh, the princess who never had anything, you know, to deal with uh, in life. And but, also adding to a much it, more affluent, like Massachusetts Much family, more affluent, like, yeah. yes. And, and they had the accent. And I, I almost wonder if part of this was like my New England-ass family being a bunch of New Englanders about it and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, the one who sounds like us is good. And, you know, <laughs> the one whose father plays God. hockey, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, the question is, you remember how Nancy Kerrigan's... Uh, like, boy, did she stop being America's fucking sweetheart yeah. when she wasn't enthusiastic enough in the right. fucking Disney World parade? Yep. She made, like, sort of a poop face or, like, a I'm bored to be here face in a Disney parade, and they massacred her in the media. It's, yeah. it's just so... All of it just mounts uh, the argument against the fucking American media and the way it portrays women athletes. Like, all every single thing in this movie and in every piece I've, I've read, every journalistic piece I've read, you know, sort of after the fact, has been, like... God, we're fucking assholes. Just, oh my God. You know, there's almost shades of the, uh, do you remember the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha episode of the O.J. Simpson uh, series that was on like a year and a half ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that was fucking great. 100% about sort of the sexism against uh, the the attorney in the case, Marsha. what was was it like the like there were reports like commenting on her appearance, so yep. she changed her, her hair, hair and then she just got suits. fucking dragged. Yep, just dragged by the hair, basically in the media. Yeah. So very, very like this is just absolutely sexism in the media and classism, especially in the case of Tanya Harding. Um, um, but yeah. so I'm curious because the documentary I saw um, had had a few theses in some yeah, ways, right? Yeah. Uh, one is that like Kerrigan was the very traditional figure skater. Like she's very, very, very good. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. One of the best in the world. But like Tanya Harding was like something else, like raw power. Yes. Um, and just like one of the most physically capable uh like figure skating athletes uh that had ever appeared on the scene. Yeah. Um but also like she literally was like Involved basically, like her personal life was a fucking Coen Brothers film. Yes. Um, yes. And I know in the documentary I saw her, like her angle, like when they when they talked to Tanya Harding was, I was one hundred percent under the control of, you know, abusive men and abusive family. Um, I did not have any agency in the story. I like you know you know what I mean like like yeah. it wasn't me uh, basically. And kind of the, the slant of the, the documentary seemed to be like, well, despite her protestations, like, boy, it sure does look like she was kind of a, a ringleader of this of this <laughs> bullshit. I'm curious where the movie comes down. Though it's 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 very much uh placing the blame squarely on the shoulders of the bodyguard and the shitty abusive husband slash ex husband. Like completely. Uh, it, it, the movie is basically saying she she's not completely innocent. She she probably knew some of it, uh, you know that kind of thing. But not that it was her idea, and not that you know she you know, actually helped them with it or anything. It was more that she was somewhat in on it on some of the planning stages, but never uh, never knew the full nature of it. In the movie, it's presented that 
it, it was the bodyguard who escalated it from basically like a, a false death threat to an actual assault. It, that it was like yeah. always going to be, oh, just to scare her, but not to actually hurt her. That kind of thing. Not that I'm condoning this. It's just sort of the thesis of the movie itself. It's, it's firmly in Tanya's camp. Uh, very, very, very firmly. And it also kind of goes to great lengths to show why she didn't trust the authorities uh, because it shows her husband, frankly, beating the shit out of her and cops not having, you know, listening mm -hmm. to him over her, that kind of thing, uh, of which it, it's it's hard to watch at times. It is a comedy that also has a fuckload of domestic abuse in it. Like, it's, it's uncomfortable in a lot of ways. And we talk a lot about sort of tonal shifts uh, on this podcast. This... Uh, this has tonal shifts that happen in, like, milliseconds. Something will be really funny. You'll be laughing. You'll be comfortable. And then there, there's a guy beating the crap out of a very tiny woman. And Tanya was 5'1". Like, she was a tiny, incredibly powerful, incredibly muscular, but really tiny uh, yeah. woman. And also her mom beating the crap out of her and even stabbing her at one point. It, it's very, like, Jesus Christ. Um it almost, not to put a value judgment on it, but it, it does almost seem like the the flayings she received in the media were almost more cruel in, in some yeah. ways than the abuse that she, she received sort of physically uh, because of that physical abuse, because she was such a battered woman uh, and, and sort of tried, despite it all, to, to be successful. It paints a very sympathetic portrait. Now, in real life, do, do, do I think Tanya is maybe completely innocent. I, I really don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, there's evidence kind of both ways, right? Yeah. There's, there's evidence to support that she was not completely clean in this. And there's also evidence to support that like, no, it, yeah, it wasn't really her, you know? It, well, it, and so, from what yeah. you described, like there's that. And I think what like a lot of media does is it ends up emphasizing like the personal choices, like those fork in the road moments where like somebody like makes a decision, but doesn't do a good job of like considering or examining all the circumstances around that, that have to happen to bring you to that fork in the road. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, who the fuck ends up with a Joey Buttafuoco in their right. life? Uh, like, like you're already you're already kind of off the map. Uh, in in some ways, in terms of like you know what what a lot of people face and go through, uh, when, like you know, imagine coupling that with like, yes, you're a world class athlete, and then you're also desperately poor and surrounded by like abusers. Um, and twenty three years old. Yeah. At this. Point. Yeah, these are all things that deserve consideration and sympathy, if not like they don't exonerate. Yeah. But at the same time, like they do deserve to be considered. Yeah, and, and just even the way, I'm so embarrassed by, even though I was a stupid kid at the time, I'm so embarrassed by the way I thought of this. Like, I'm a, I'm embarrassed at myself for, for, like, believing that shitty, absolutely no research went into it uh, sort of portrayal of her. Like, anybody with uh, access to public police records could see she had a restraining order against this, this ex-husband. Anybody could see... Uh, you know, many, many accounts of him hitting her in public. Like, it's it's just so obvious that how badly she was abused. It's actually obvious. It was on that level. Uh, and, like, God, it's just the general classism of, of portraying someone yeah. like that. Like, yes, she did have to hunt for her food when she was young. Yeah, she did Good have Lord. to do a lot of, like, rough-and-tumble things. She did work on, like, very blue-collar jobs uh, to get by. And, like... She had to do those things to, to pay for skating, 
You know, she had to do those things and she was driven enough to do those things that we should, we should like appreciate that. We should, we should appreciate how hard she worked uh, to be where she is, not make fun of her for it because she wasn't, you know, skating royalty or whatever. There's, I mean, there's a lot of sexism in, in a lot, in pretty much every sport, there's sexism. Uh, and there's sexism with, with how women athletes are portrayed in everything. But especially in something like figure skating, we're looking like a princess, even though you have to have inc insane leg strength, right? You have to have crazy amounts of strength in your legs uh, to be able to pull off some of these things. And there, there were portrayals of her at the time that were like, look at how fat her thighs are. And it's like, yep. she's an athlete. <laughs> she needs muscular thighs to launch herself into the air, hurl herself around five times or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know anything technical about ice skating. So pardon me if this is not the number of times. Uh, and, and to do that correctly. Five like, would be a lot. I, think. I, I guess it's three. I think it was the, the triple axel was the thing that she was like the first American woman to do in competition. She actually was like this, yeah, very, very well known for raw strength and, and, and technical ability. So yeah, it's just, there's a lot. There's a lot there that, that I even really appreciated just at, also as a woman athlete, also as somebody who, who is super grossed out by that kind of portrayal of like, so you have to do this incredibly grueling physical thing, but you got to look like a princess doing it. You know, it's fuck off. Like the human body could do amazing things and you can make a poop face while you do it. And that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very real. And it, it also, um, it, my only beef with the movie at all is that it, it touches a tiny bit on her boxing career sort of later in life. And the scenes that sort of show her boxing career are this like flurry of brutality and blood and I was kind of sitting there like, look, look, my friend, first of all, figure skating is a brutal ass sport and you're portraying it again as like this beautiful ice dancing and twirling with sequins. But like that shit takes such a toll on your body. You probably have messed up ass feet and ankles for doing that. So like, let's not pretend that there's a pretty sport and a brutal sport here. <laughs> um, so that was my only beef. It was kind of like, look, boxing is beautiful too. Like It's different. Yes, it's different. But she's an amazing athlete and like good for her for going for it. Uh, but yeah, that was really my only beef uh, whatsoever with the movie. I thought it was fantastic. The acting was genuinely astounding. I think Margot Robbie and Alison Janney especially were amazing in this movie. And I can't say enough good things about it. I really I encourage people to see I, Tanya. It was real good. Uh, so screw it. I, I just want to talk about it. Um, yeah. It's a little old by this point, but I really liked Thor Ragnarok, damn it. Hell yeah! I still need to see it, but I I think I'll like it, so you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so, like, I forget if we've talked about this. Are we both of a, of a mind that f the first Thor movie was secretly one of the best Marvel films? Oh, easily. In fact, yeah. I, I feel like I've, I've gotten even more, like... <sighs> bullish on that position you know yeah. like like actually i think it's actually one of the only good ones at this point but yes yes sorry oh man that is a uh whew, that is an escalation that i kind of like that, I, that i'm kind of into mm -hmm. um i like they're they're fun but like yes there is something hollow Flimsy. to a lot of them yes 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 100 <laughs> percent uh but Thor Ragnarok did kind of feel like sort of a return to the uninhibited wildness of the first Thor movie. Good. Um, but also just cranked up 
to just an absurd degree. Yeah. Uh, right. Like the first, so the first movie is, uh, you know, you got, you got Brana directing and it very much is like, look at these Shakespearean at like as guardians, basically, uh, bringing their theatrics down to small town America. Yes. And that juxtaposition is intrinsically hilarious. Like it's, it, it's just great. Uh, and, and the entire movie works because of that and also works because, uh, you know, Hiddleston ended up being just a home run as a villain, uh, that the entire Marvel universe still hasn't managed to surpass. Um, and I think what, what I loved about this one is it just kind of accepts that like, look, the best things about this series are just these like dialed up performances. Yes. Uh, and so we are, we're going to abandon the pretense that Hiddleston is not a main character in this franchise. He, you know, he, he is, he's a, he's not an antagonist. He's, you know, more of an anti-hero or, or protagonist, but he's part of this. Um, but then the way this movie I think carries off these brilliant uh, like whipsaws between real hilarity and absurdist humor <laughs> and then like touching tragedy. Um, like early in the movie, there's the sequence like they handle it very quickly. Thor figures out that Loki is basically like kidnapped their dad. He's kidnapped <laughs> Odin and has been impersonating him on uh, in, in, uh, in Asgard for a while. And it is, it's hysterical. Like the entire act of like him catching Loki and uh, then sort of dragging him back to force him to admit like where's, where, where Odin is being kept. All this stuff is hilarious. Um, it, it feels very much like, you know, it's these two cartoon characters almost, uh, you know, it's uh, Tom and Jerry, like, you know, going at it again. And then that scene seamlessly transitions into a really affecting uh, exchange they have with um, with Odin, and it's just you know Anthony Hopkins at his best opposite <laughs> uh, you know Hemsworth and Hiddleston. Like it is like one minute you're you're laughing your ass off, and the next moment you are watching like a regretful father trying to pack an entire lifetime's worth of reconciliation and apology and understanding into five minutes. Oh God. Yeah. And then he's gone. And then you get Kate Blanchett's, uh, Hella, oh. which is, uh, just incredible. And the, and her beef is that, and this is the other cool thing. Like this is where some of the, uh, you know, I think sort of durability of the movie comes from, She's not just evil for evil's sake. The The point she, she makes is that she was made to be as evil as she is. She is a ruthless, like, queen of slaughter, uh, basically. And she did that at Odin's behest. And then he started to feel regretful for the kind of king he was being and banished her. And then covered the entire thing up. Uh, and and I think this is the other part of the, this movie and, and why it really works is it's kind of about the uh, hidden histories that surround us all the time, yeah. right? The the myths we tell ourselves versus the the truths they cover up, and what happens when the two run headlong into each other. Uh, and it tells that story really really well while also still being a movie 
where um you know Jeff Goldblum is what do you even call it? like it's just <laughs> Jeff Goldbluming really yeah. like like he's just there like and just oh what's the what's the just just like the galactic sleaze at the end of the universe I guess is the, is the way to describe him uh but it is it is so terrific uh, that he's in this movie, and then there's kind of a buddy road trip aspect with Thor and the Hulk. Um, yeah, it's it, you know this is a movie that pays off on so much of the work of the Marvel series to date, uh, yeah. but also gets at something I think really important about the the Thor series itself, uh, and ends up making you know quietly one of the best Marvel movies I think they've they've managed to produce. I'm really excited to hear that. I I've been trying to see this movie for like, you know, since it came out. I feel like I've gone to movie theaters and been like, oh, is, what what time is it at? Or I've looked up movie times. I've I've tried. It's going to happen because I I think I will really enjoy this. It, the, all of those things sound like things I will be very into and very very excited to see. Especially the Jeff Goldblum part. I I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Excited to see that. Awesome. Well, I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends and our Christmas break. If it's we're gonna, just going to admit we're not recording anything over the holidays, right? Like uh, we will yeah. see everyone in 2018. Yeah. But like we need like after the shit show of a fall, we need a few days to uh, reconstitute ourselves. We're all kind of puddles of guck right now, and we need to reconstitute into human form. I think yes. I think that that's what I need to do. Maybe I'm speaking too much for other people. No, no, I think that. I mean, I mean, look, like that sort of sounds like what Odo would do. Yep. Uh, aboard DS9, uh, yeah. and he always seemed to get a lot out of it. So I'm all about that. that that goo life. Oh, goo life! That's gonna be our title. That's good. I like that. That's good. Ah, oh, this episode of Idle Weekend, of course, was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. I did it. I did it again. <laughs> it wouldn't be an episode without that. <laughs> you can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we do appreciate you spending some time with us, and we appreciate your patience with uh, our podcast schedule as well. So if you enjoyed this show, please do go ahead and tell your friends, tell your relatives that you see at uh, whatever holiday gathering you might be going to. Tell whoever you think might enjoy Idle Weekend all about us. It really does help us out, and we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs>